Oh, I know a lot of you sitting out there, you know, you think kids can get away with it, but boy, you think, oh, I would have loved to have said that myself, right? <laughs> Leave it to kids. Oh, that's awesome. Um, it's kind of shocking when you wake up in the morning um, and you read your news and all of a sudden something's happened that's quite dramatic and drastic and you get that news pretty much right away. You know, a, a volcano explodes underwater, tsunamis, warning systems, you know, halfway around the world, sonic booms that were heard even in Northland. It's amazing how much we get right away. We can step straight into action, do what needs to be done, find out what help needs to happen, get it out there, and we can do it within 24 hours. But we need to understand that this kind of information for most of human history, really up until maybe, what, less than 100 years ago, was not in play. People had no idea what was going on in the world, and they would find out many, many years or months later. There's this great picture. Um, I can't remember the English artist who did these sketches. He did a series of these sketches of what he called these beautiful sunsets that were happening in London. And people would come out to gaze at these wonderful sunsets that were happening around. This was in 1883. And they, for a good month or two, were just enjoying these wonderful sunsets. In Norway, uh, they were taking it a little bit differently. Um, <laughs> um, the painting of, of the screen by um, Edward uh, Munch um, kind of depicts the same skies, again, painted in the same season, but at the same time with these red skies. What neither of them knew what was going on halfway across the world was that Krakatoa had erupted, well, not erupted, exploded, and sent all this dust and volcanic ash into the air, which made these beautiful sunsets for the Londoners, for the Norwegians, there was a bit more fear. Um, but neither of them knew what was going on in the world. They had absolutely no idea. And in the ancient world, this was normal. For, for most of human history, 99% of human history, this was normal. You wouldn't know what was going on. You would never have known, waking up this morning, that there was a volcano that exploded in Tonga. You would not have known that. Sailors might come by and let us know about all that, but on the whole, if it weren't somebody telling you about it, you would never know. And sometimes existential threats popped up the next day. Kind of like waking up in the morning and finding that there's an asteroid about to hit Earth. And you're like, what? Where did that come from? Why didn't anyone see that? Um, there's a great... Uh, the Romans, who had, had just defeated Hannibal and, and kind of laid to waste the Carthage uh, Empire, and they had destroyed uh, the Numidians and... and Jugurtha, and they thought they were the king of the worlds until all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these peoples had arrived. And they weren't just a few. The Romans addressed them as millions, but it wasn't probably millions, but there was a lot of them. And it was the first time in history we hear someone being tagged as white people. They saw these blonde, blue-eyed people. They called them the Teutons, the Kindry. 
We don't actually know who these people were, but out of nowhere, the Romans were faced with an existential threat at their border. And the writers at the time went crazy. Who are these people? Where do they come from? What happened? During uh, the, um, the Crusades, where the uh, uh, Christians in Europe were sending troops you know, off in these crusades to, to, to you know, get the Holy Land off the hands of these heathen Muslims. Something happened during that time where the Muslim forces were decimated before the, the Christians even got there. And the Christians thought this was this fantastical person named Presper John who has come in and swiped and killed the armies. It wasn't, it was the Mongol Empire that was making its way to Europe. No one knew who these hordes were and all of a sudden they show up one day and decimate the Hungarian army and then disappear. No one knows where to find them. Who were they? This is history. This is how humanity has lived. And funnily enough, I think humanity coped better when they didn't know. (laughs) Because the more information we have, the more stressed we tend to become, right? Well, in ancient ancient Israel, they had a lot of threats around them. And some of these threats just appeared sometimes out of nowhere. They had no idea where they were coming from. And they might have been this massive empire for a long time, but then all of a sudden, they are coming to take over us. We didn't realize this. Some of the problems in the ancient world was you could wait, you knew they were coming, but it would take two or three weeks or maybe a month before they would arrive. You imagine the stress of knowing that you've got this big army coming to kill you and you've got nowhere to go. That was the reality of the ancient world. Israel had a problem. In the north, they had Assyria. Out in the east, they had the Babylonians. In the south, they had the Egyptians. And they never knew when these armies would just totally take it up upon themselves to come and conquer something. But the Assyrians were the worst of the lot. They were referred to as kind of the Nazis of the ancient world. The Nazi regime lasted how many years? Not much, huh? Yeah, at the most. The Assyrian Empire lasted for hundreds, hundreds of years. You imagine an empire as bad as the Nazis around, not for just a part of our lifetime, but for generations. And sometimes they get all quiet and sit in their little place and do their own thing. There'll be a little infighting and stuff, but then all of a sudden they show up at your front door. Out of the blue. They were uh, not a nice bunch of people. Uh, What they would do is they'd conquer the lands of their uh, enemies or, or their vassal states. They would take them and then they'd split the people up so that they would lose their identity. And they'd mix people. Because in ancient times, your blood was really important if it was pure, and if it wasn't pure, you were considered, um, yeah, second-rate citizen, in a sense. And so the Assyrians knew this, and so they went to battle, making sure that when they conquered these people, they would split them and throw them away and put them in different parts of the empire, mix them, so that they would lose their identity over time. And, And they were a really wretched bunch. If you can see what that picture depicts, you can see the Assyrians holding you know, the heads of their enemies as they cart them down. 
they were that bad. And there's some quite grotesque things that I could tell you about them, but let's just say they were really bad. Now, their empire was quite big. It took up quite a lot of territory. By the time we come to this story in Jonah, they are basically, they haven't conquered uh, Egypt yet, but they're on their way down. They have conquered most of, uh, if not all, of Babylon. Um, but at their height, they'd conquered the Egyptian Empire and they ruled um, horribly. Horribly. So let's just take a quick step back and let's talk about Israel because we've got to kind of fix them into this whole picture. Israel in 926 BC, Solomon, King Solomon dies. It's a united Israel, it's a whole kingdom, the whole lot, they're all together. His son, Rehoboam, becomes king. But then, hey, uh, the northerners don't like him. And so there's a bit of bickering and fighting. But actually what ends up happening is they split into two kingdoms. The ten tribes of the north go and set up their own king, not of the line of David, but their own king, and do their own stuff. And in the south, there's two tribes, Simeon, who's just kind of molded into Judah, really. Um, and so it's the kingdom of Judah. And so the kings of Judah remain you know, kings in the line of David, and, and they continue doing their own thing. And at times, they oppose each other. At times, they come together and fight the common enemies. But for the most part, they're on their own sides. There's a line down the middle, and they do their own thing. In 841 BC, the Assyrian Empire begins to get a little bit more, or just a little bit earlier than this, a little bit more uh, active. And all of a sudden, they start showing up in places people don't expect. And it's not like an emissary that comes with a, you know, a couple of diplomats to talk. The whole army would just show up. And you'd be like, whoa, what's going on here? In 841, Jehu kills Jehoram. Jehoram is um, Ahab and Jezebel's son. And Jehu then clears out the temple of Baal. He destroys all the high places and uh, he gets his uh, officials to throw Jezebel out the window um, and she dies and gone. And he cleans everything up. But he also realizes that there's a real problem going on here. The Assyrians are going to attack. They don't know when, they don't know how. They've got not uh, enough manpower to deal with this. So he actually brokers a deal with them to pay them off so they don't come and destroy him. And the fascinating thing about that is that we today have a record of that encounter. If you go to the British Museum, there's this statue, this obelisk called the Black Obelisk of Shamanasur III. And the third scripture down is this. It shows King Yehu coming and bowing with his, um, with his offering to Shamanasur III. The script writing underneath explains what he's handing over to the king. There's ox and gold and all sorts of things. To appease the Assyrian king and to say, hey, we will uh, just leave us alone, but we'll give you what you want. Don't invade us. And that's in 841 BC. Fast forward, the book of Jonah, which we're going to be looking at this morning, happens around about 750 BC. And the king at the time is Jeroboam. He's the king at this time. And here's the fascinating part. 30 years from this date, Israel will cease to exist. They will be wiped from the map. 30 years from this date that Jonah is giving his message from God. So keep that in mind, who these people are 
as we go to Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, if you don't know where Tarshish is, here's a map. So if you can get an idea, he most probably thought, where is the furthest I can go? Because God gave him this mission. I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is not Club Med. Okay, Nineveh is not a really cool place. Hey, south of Spain is much cooler. Right? It's got nice beaches and people kind of leave you alone. They don't behead you and all that kind of stuff. So he's heading out. The interesting thing about this, he would have paid a fortune for this little ride. If you think of it in world standards, if I'm flying to, say, Moscow, it's going to cost me a whole lot more to get to Moscow than it is to get to Auckland. He's paying a lot of money to get away from God. And he has reason to. Um, Many, many, many years later, about 300 BC, Alexander the Great is marching through what was Assyria. And there was nothing there. And one of his uh, doctors was with him who was writing an account of Alexander's uh, exploits. He said, we came to these big mounds of what was once, I think, a, a, a city. It must have been big because a lot of it was ruined and a lot of it was under sand, but no one here but buzzards and, 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 and cattle. What he was describing was the great city of Nineveh. When they finally did destroy Nineveh, they made sure it would not rise again. That's how much people disliked Nineveh, the Assyrians. To this day, it's a ruin in the middle of a desert. So Jonah, really, <laughs> he had reason not to want to go to, 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 to Nineveh. And not only was it just a not safe place, but it was just, not just an unwelcoming place, they were heathens. They deserved to die. If there was one people group in the ancient world that deserved the worst, it was these guys. But he runs off in the opposite direction. Now, I don't know how you guys feel. Maybe it's different for you guys. When you get a feeling that God wants you to do something, you can kind of explain away that feeling. You know, oh, God really wants me to go talk to that person. Does he really or is it just me? No, it's not really God. I'll just move on. But if God actually kind of spoke up and said, Rob, I want you to go to talk to that person, what are you going to say to that? Would you have the guts to say no? Personally, I'd have a hard time. You know, he just, God spoke to me, like with words. How do I say no to that? That's how fearful Jonah was of going to Nineveh. Yes, God, I'll, I'll go. Just wait. Hang on a second. Oh, look. This boat's going, yeah, no, no, I'm going. I'm just going to take a detour. Just trying to explain it away. This is something, though, that is really interesting because when it comes to the Old Testament God that we know, we always think of this God as being vengeful and, and, and bloodthirsty and, and just doing all these evil things. But Jonah gives us a completely different picture of who God is right in the middle of this Old Testament. Where so many people complain about who this God is, but we never go to Jonah. 
And in Jonah, we see almost immediately that God cares about all people. Everyone. There isn't a people group on this planet that he doesn't care about. If you get the worst of the worst of the worst, he cares about them. And the funny thing about that is, he wants us to care about them as well. Amen. From the words of children. He wants us to care about them. Because his heart is for people. They are his children. And he wants us to care about them. Care about their eternal salvation. Care about their well-being. Care about where they're at. Even if they don't deserve it. Especially if they don't deserve it. Going on in Jonah. Then the Lord sent a great wind. I can just imagine God's like, I mean, come on, Jonah. Really? Who are you trying to worry away from? It's not like I'm some guy, you know, kind of hanging out in the desert here. I'm like the God who created everything, right? Well, how are you going to try away? He goes, he sends a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the th- ship threatened to break up and all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship and, and what people don't understand by throwing the cargo, they've just basically thrown away any profits they're going to make and they're most probably going to be liable for what they've just thrown into the sea because they're going to have to pay for it and they're going to have to deal with a lot of angry customers in Tarshish. I don't know how the Spaniards are in this time of, uh, of history but any people group would be very unhappy if, if their letter from Mama in the, uh, in the Middle East hasn't arrived or the yams aren't coming so these guys out of absolute terror and fear they throw the cargo to lighten the ship but Jonah had gone below deck and where he lay down he fell into a deep sleep and then the captain went to him and said how can you sleep get up and call on your God maybe he'll take notice of us and we will not perish a bit callous of Jonah isn't it but there's a bit of arrogance that we see also in Jesus like there's this massive storm on the Sea of Galilee and 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 these professional fishermen who fished all their lives on Galilee are freaking out trying to hold on trying to to keep this boat afloat and Jesus where is he he's sleeping Jonah knows very well like Jesus knew very well that God wasn't going to sink that boat Jonah knew it because he knew God wanted him to go the other direction and was going to do whatever he could to get him over there. He was arrogant enough that he went to sleep. He forgot that the calling that God had for him was because he cared for all people. And right now, Jonah's not caring much for these people in the boat who have just thrown overboard their livelihood. Going on from verse 7, Then the sailors said to each other, Come, Let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. I love how much in the Old Testament and New Testament lots are used. And they always seem to be right. Does that make you a little bit more fearful about casting lots? I mean, we should do that here at church sometime. Imagine choosing an elder from casting lots. Well, they chose an apostle that way, didn't they? Um, But here they, they cast lots. 
And, and, and this is the funny thing. I think we Christians can get so superstitious about things, so overwhelmed by, oh, the evilness of, of things, that God uses anything to get his point across, even lots. Right? Because believe it or not, maybe some of you need to hear this, God is bigger than the powers of this earth. The Holy Spirit in you is bigger than anything in this world. Sometimes we kind of forget that. They cast lots and it fell on Jonah, poor old Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? Uh, From what people are you? Do you have a, who knows what? What are you all about? You have a CV on you. What's your Myers-Briggs? Let's let's get to know you a bit more. What's going on? My initial response was, how do you trust lots, people? Come on. Cast him again. If it gets me again, I don't know. He just seems to think, yeah, now I'm caught. And he goes on, he says, here, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. What have you done? What have you done? They get it better than the prophet of God. What, are, you, are you nuts? Are you crazy? How did you think you could run away from him? We don't really know him and we know better. And this is a thing I think even for us Christians today. God cares for all people. God will use lots and he'll use all sorts of things to get through to you. And we tend to forget this. Going on from verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And he said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And they cried out to the Lord, Lord, Do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. God will use anyone to set us straight. Anyone. I think, I think we, we just have a hard time embracing this sometimes. That God will use anyone to set us straight. The least of the peoples that you think will set us straight. God will use them. Sometimes people who don't even know God act more Christian than we do. More Christ-like than we do. I can tell you from a personal standpoint, I mean, I think few of you here could agree with me. There are no worse place to be treated than in a church sometimes. Sometimes the real world shows us how to treat people better. Workplaces have rules. We should be leading by example. We should be the ones ahead of the curve. We're the ones that the world should be looking at and saying, hey, 
Look what they're doing. Why are they doing that? What's possessing them to be that way? Instead, in this story, it's flipped. And unwittingly, Jonah has saved a whole boatload of people. (laughs) Which is extraordinary because God will use us regardless. Even when we mess up, no matter what goes on, God will use us. And you can read it in Jonah chapter 2. You imagine how Jonah felt. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord. He's got, Lord, couldn't you have just sent me a raft? I mean, Lord, you can see into the future. You know, submarines. I won't tell anyone. People just don't realize that the belly of a fish is not like, um, you know, Geppetto and, and Pinocchio. He's got his raft and he's got a little table where he's riding and a little lamp. And he's sitting in the belly of a fish, right? All comfortable. The water's nice and calm in there. He's got a little fishing rod off the side. That's not the belly of a fish, guys. There's acids and, and gunk and dead fish, and it smells really, really bad, and you're being slowly digested. Yeah, it's not fun. And you can only imagine how Jonah felt in that moment. Just a bit foolish. Just a bit, what? How could I have done this? I should have known better. And, and he doesn't actually know that he's going to get out of this. We'll tackle a little bit of that next week. But the last point I want to share with you is that God works even through our failures. Even through the points in our lives where we think we've really messed up. Like, I really should have done that. Well, how do I respond to that? Why did I do that? people aren't going to take me seriously anymore I don't take myself seriously anymore God works even through our failures and Jonah unwittingly being sent to Nineveh ends up on a boat halfway to Tarshish and on his way to Nineveh he has just saved a whole bunch of people on a boat who have come to now know the Lord and fear the Lord but the problem is he's stuck in the belly of a fish Dun, 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 dun. Let me give you a little hint to next week. He will get out. <laughs> but there's an important story in that process of him getting out. We'll deal with it a little bit more next week. Because actually, I think there are two cruxes to this book. This chapter 2 and the end of the book. The time that he's in the belly of a fish, sometimes we ourselves feel like we are in a belly of a fish. Sometimes we just can't see the sky. And sometimes we feel we're just not good enough. Well, God's here to tell you that you are. Not because of what you can do, but what he can do through you. And if you're in the belly of the fish, don't worry. He'll get you out. Trust him. And hold out till next week and I'll tell you how he gets out. Amen? So, the challenge for you this week is this. Who have you ignored in your life? Who's been speaking into your life 
maybe this past week or past few weeks, that you've palmed off because, well, they're not Christian, or they're not holy enough, or who are they to tell me? Is there someone in your life you've just been holding at an arm's distance for whatever excuse you've had, who's actually truly speaking into your life, that God's trying to use them to speak into something in your life that you've been ignoring? The challenge I've got for you this week is to take some time out and think about who that person might be. And think about what God's trying to tell you through that. And maybe why are you resisting it? It could be some friend, it could be a neighbour, it could be Jacinda Ardern, I don't know. Okay? I don't know. But the challenge is this. I think we are very selective about who we want to listen to. But God isn't. He will use anyone to get through to you. Amen? Ask the team to come up and I'll lead us in prayer. Father God, <laughs> we're going to be singing a song, uh, My Lighthouse, Lord, and boy, <laughs> I think Jonah might have needed that in his life. Um, I pray for that for us, Lord, as we uh, come before you and as we lift up to you the things that are maybe holding us down, the things that we are holding on to that are holding us down. We want to lift them up to you, Lord. Uh, get a spotlight onto areas in our lives that we really need to be looking at, Lord. For many of us, heading off to Nineveh is a scarier thing. It may not be something that big, it may be a smaller thing. And many of us, were just heading for that boat and trying to get away from it all. But what are you calling us to, Lord? What are you calling out in our lives? Now, may you spotlight on it. Bear your light upon it in our lives, Lord. Holy Spirit, speak to us and challenge us, Lord. So that we can be more, more like Jesus. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet.